This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Hey everyone, it's Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. We'll be back on September 27th with the country duo Maddie and Tay. But in the meantime, I want to reshare an episode from our summer tour series featuring the chef, author, and TV host Alton Brown. Hope you enjoy it, and we'll see you again next week. Welcome to a special summer tour edition of Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, Editor-in-Chief of Southern Living Magazine. My guest this week is a chef, author, actor, cinematographer, musician, and storyteller. I think it's fair to say that Alton Brown changed food television forever, transforming a sleepy genre with his unique brand of funny, smart, and highly entertaining cooking shows. His scientific approach to cooking, as well as his knack for showmanship, have made him one of the most successful food celebrities of all time, and he is not slowing down. He just finished the second leg of his Beyond the Eats tour, and he recently released Good Eats 4, The Final Years, a doorstopper of a book, and what he says will be the last of his award-winning series. Today, we'll chat about his childhood in North Georgia, his complicated relationship with Southern food, and his other life as a musician. Plus, Alton shares the greatest lessons he learned from his grandmother about food, biscuits, and much more. Alton Brown, welcome to Biscuits and Jam. Thanks for having me on. So where am I reaching you right now? I'm at home in uh, Marietta, Georgia, for at least a few days. So Alton, you were born in... LA, I believe, but you spent a lot of your childhood in a small town in Georgia. Do you have fond memories of growing up there? Not many, no. <laughs> That's not entirely true. Both of my parents were from North Georgia, Cornelia, in fact, which is very close to Cleveland, not one county over. And it had been my father's dream to own a radio station. We were living in Los Angeles and, and I had terrible asthma problems with the smog there. And it just so happens that my dad had an opportunity to buy an AM radio station in Cleveland, Georgia, WRWH, 1350 on your radio dial. And so we moved to Georgia. So I went from North Hollywood, California, to not very far from where they made the movie Deliverance, to a school where kids came sometimes without shoes, because, you know, Shoes are for Sunday. And it was, it was an interesting mixed bag. My parents eventually also bought the county newspaper. And the thing that, I, that you asked me about good memories, I would say that most of my really good memories there have to do with, there's a very large camp for Jewish kids just outside Cleveland called Camp Barney. And even kids from New York, from all over the country come there. But they had a day camp for us Gentile kids. So I spent a lot of my summers at Camp Barney uh, doing camp-like things. And, and I have a lot of really fond memories of, of that time. So uh, kind of connection with the outdoors that you might not have gotten as much in Los Angeles. 
Oh, definitely. Except for a few strange instances, like one time an organ grinder at a circus lost his monkey. And the monkey took up residence on the rooftops of our neighborhood. The problem is no one saw the monkey but me. And so when I keep telling people that there was a monkey wearing a small red vest on the roof, they were like, this child clearly needs some form of medication. <laughs> so there, there were some, some times with, with wild animals, but not like living in North Georgia where one could stumble across any form of animal life. I, for instance, in fourth grade, we're all scouts. And scouts in those days, whatever day your scout meeting was on, you came to school in your uniform. And your uniform, of course, included your prized possession, which was your scout knife. Back then, bringing a knife to school was like everybody was carrying. And one day, a friend of mine showed up. And in his lunchbox, he had a baby possum that he had caught in the woods. And I knew the second that I saw the baby possum that I had to have it. And I traded <laughs> my coveted Boy Scout knife for the possum, which then became a house pet in our home for quite a while. Her name was Marcy, Marcy the marsupial. So I can't imagine a more Southern upbringing than having a possum as a pet. You really can't make this stuff up. Yeah, you can't make it. Well, you could. <laughs> well, so what about food, Alton? When did you have some of your first kind of aha moments with food? I was a foodie from early on and had very odd tastes. Most parents worry about getting their kids to eat things. My parents worried about keeping me from eating things because I would put almost anything in my mouth. When I was three, I discovered the joys of Gainsburger dog food, which I would still tap right now if you put one in front of me. So I had all kinds of crazy tastes. And when I got to Georgia, I realized that I, I disliked almost all Southern food, except for biscuits, which my grandmother was an exceptional practitioner of the art of biscuiture. It was interesting because my families were like merchant class, but they had come up very, very poor. And so they ate, we'll just call it a, a limited menu of things, but they were still very connected to a time when the South, even North Georgia was very agrarian, you know, so there was a lot of great produce. You know, the first time I locked onto some Silver Queen corn, I thought I was going to die. I mean, that <laughs> was what food was supposed to taste like. But then my, my grandfather, my, my mother's father, also taught me the joys of canned sardines, which are not exactly a Southern thing, but a love that I have with me to this day. So I think that what I, I had gone from a, a very cosmopolitan to Georgia, which was not that. It was very much about learning local cuisines. When they had the radio station in their newspaper, they would often trade ad space to people for foods that they might produce on their farm. That might be cakes, any number of cured meat products. So I really kind of had, I had my own CSA, you know, I had my own artisanal food sources as a kid. And I, I learned very early on to, to appreciate that, to be honest. So you mentioned your grandmother. Was she around in Georgia and someone who who taught you a lot there or or did that come later you know the teaching of cuisine and of cooking technique in the South. I mean, first off, I, I was fortunate to have all my grandparents were alive for a lot of years. I was very close to my maternal grandparents, especially my grandmother. Was that Mame? Mame, yes, Mame. But Mame wouldn't have told you she was a great cook. She cooked because her husband and family needed feeding. She owned a dress shop, which she had saved and, and she had worked in a mill. And so she would say, good Lord, this isn't cuisine. This is not starving to death. What I think a lot of Southern cooks do, especially those that came up. Of course, they very strongly remembered the war. They remembered Victory Gardens. There was still a local community cannery. So a lot of stuff got put up, as we love to say. But the teaching was more like this. It's like you throw out bait. Okay, here's the bait. The bait is a biscuit. Okay, here's this biscuit. Go eat your biscuit. 
you eat the biscuit, you really like the biscuit. So eventually you start to smell the biscuits and you smell the biscuits that's in the kitchen. So you go to the kitchen and pretty soon you start going to the kitchen even earlier when you know biscuits <laughs> are going to be made. And pretty soon you're just watching, you're just watching and then you're talking and it's perhaps years before you even think about touching the food. And that's because in the 60s and early 70s, male children were not, by and large, actively taught how to cook. But what my grandmother taught wasn't like, come here, you're going to learn how to make dot, dot, dot. No, that was my grandfather's job. Come here, you're going to learn how to put a brake line in a VW Beetle. Okay, that was different. Uh, Of course, that was also money-making and also a very masculine craft. So I wouldn't say that anyone taught me until much, 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 much later. I have often told this story, and there's probably references to it on the internet, that the, the greatest lesson that my grandmother taught me about food was to shut up and pay attention. I had gone for years not being able to conquer or replicate her biscuits until I I finally put ingredients out of my mind and technique out of my mind and noticed that because she had arthritis, which was really bad in her later years, when she needed the biscuit dough, she never bent her fingers. That was the secret. That was the entire difference between her biscuits and my biscuits is that I was overworking the dough by actually flexing my fingers into it. By just sitting back and watching her again, completely forgetting everything else, I was able to pick that up. And that's when you realize that Every recipe, every dish is marked by a life. So her mark was that she couldn't bend her hands. Now, I haven't figured out what my mark is yet. (laughs) Well, you know, you have this incredibly scientific approach to cooking. You're famous for it. It's a part of your TV shows that you've done for years. But she seems kind of like the anti-scientist. Oh, she couldn't care less. When I went to my man and told her that I was going to have my own television show, she said, where? And I said, Food Network. And she was like, there's a TV channel about cooking? (laughs) Who would watch that? She was like, truly, like, why would someone want to watch the thing that I had to do in order to feed my family? Oh, my God, it's the last thing I'm going to watch. And I'm like, I know. I don't know what to tell you. So not only was she anti-scientific, she was anti the entire process. (laughs) She thought all this fussing about food was just ridiculous. (laughs) Well, that must be why she is so well remembered for her appearances on that show. So Alton, you graduated from the New England Culinary Institute. And for someone who grew up in the South and was so steeped in Southern cooking, did you have to unlearn a bunch of things or was the Southern background actually an advantage? Hmm. Well, I wouldn't call it an advantage. I will tell you that the chefs that I encountered at school some of who were really fine chefs. And in one particular French chef that I interned under, it's funny because French chefs in a way are a whole lot like traditional Southern cooks. They don't care about how, they don't care about why, they just care about do it. Pay attention, they care about the passing on of instructional knowledge. This is how you do it. You don't need to know why. You don't need to know anything, but this is how you do it. Now, up in Vermont, they can't cook grits, okay? They don't because they don't understand what a grit even is. It's, it's kind of like, you know, my cousin Vinny. What exactly is a grit? They don't know. They think it's polenta. N- no, no, it's white <laughs> hominy corn. 
and it's cooked kind of the same, but it isn't the same. So I didn't have to de-learn anything because really we were all kind of being held together by European traditions, which I'd experienced during a summer of, of college in Italy and, and a few other places. I'd been somewhere besides the South. But what I did have to appreciate is the deep regional differences in ingredients, in cooking technologies, in cooking customs and traditions, and even just taste and flavor. But it was a struggle because in, in either case, I very quickly understood that what I had to have in order to cook was I had to know why. And that was a really hard question to get answered back then. And unfortunately, yes, part of my, oh God, I can't believe I'm going to use this word, brand, <laughs> is that quote, science, end quote, of understanding what's going on. But the danger in that is separating yourself from tradition and from custom. And I have met people that have cast aside family custom, culinary custom, and traded it in for, quote, science, end quote. That may make the food better, but it also invalidates it to some degree. Mm. And I worry about that. Mm -hmm. Something gets lost there. Something gets traded. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, that trade is justified. For instance, I don't know how many people I've had come up to me and thank me for the good eats roast turkey because it saved them from the tradition of dry flavorless turkey that had currently existed in their family. So I'm glad for that. I'm glad that people got a turkey that they liked, but it did force a separation. It forced a, a break in a chain. That chain was probably going to get broken anyway. Coming out of you know World War II, the changes in, in the food that we buy meant losing a bit of soul in exchange for I would say convenience, but that's too convenient of a word. <laughs> but something decidedly not soulful. <laughs> yes, decidedly not soulful. But what is soulful in, in food? What is that? We throw that around a lot. You know, people that talk about, oh, the, the soul. What does that mean? I, I, I don't know what that means. Do you know what it means? I think it has something to do with that tradition that you're talking about and something that has some meaning beyond the ingredients. Yes. And does that have a flavor? I think you know it when you taste it. <laughs> well, I think it's about family connectivity. And what I think that we have done culturally, and this is very much at my door, I'm one of the people that did this, was to replace family with media. We have taken the learning of culinary traditions away from our grandparents and our parents and placed it in the hand of slick media presenters, of which I am. I'm really a slick presenter. I'm very good at it. I don't know that I should have always done that. But you've also been an ambassador for Southern food and someone who has written about, talked about Southern food traditions. Well, I mean, look, I would like to think that I haven't capitalized on that in a big way. I'm from the South and we spend most of our weekends in a one room cabin on a lake in Alabama. We buy our fried chicken at a gas station. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but I still don't know what quote Southern food is. I struggle to understand the actual concept of what Southern food is, because I, I refuse to believe that it's a series of dishes. And I refuse to believe that it is a series of ingredients. Okay. There's something else. And it's something that we don't talk about much because to do so means skimming right on the edge of 
a lot of things that make a lot of people angry. I suspect that the, the cuisine of my grandmother was probably more influenced by her African-American neighbors than her own lineage. So to talk about Southern food, we have to talk about race and we have to talk about history. And here's the thing, the most beautiful thing that I can think of about Southern cuisine is in its best forms, exquisitely exclusive and inclusive at the same time. It is of itself and of everyone at the same time. And so I think that Really, Southern cuisine has to be viewed constantly through the lens of history in an honest, unflinching way that makes a lot of people really uncomfortable. You're absolutely right. And I think it's important to keep having that conversation and it kind of never ends. You've got to keep talking about it. And as long as you're connected to it in some way. Well, the challenge about media. I'm here talking to you because I made a TV show for a bunch of years. The things that led me to that had almost nothing to do with food and a lot more to do with filmmaking. I decided to go into this because I was a filmmaker who was really unhappy with my clients. I don't know that from a cultural standpoint, I have ignited or engaged in useful cultural communication or conversation. What I've done is tried to get people to be able to make better meatloaf. And that's an easy thing to talk about. I can talk to you about meatloaf all day. But again, when we talk about Southern food, well. <laughs> that's a whole other thing. I'll be back with more from Alton Brown after the break. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome back to Biscuits and Jam from Southern Living. I'm Sid Evans, and today I'm talking with Alton Brown. You know, one thing's for sure, Southern food has a very different profile now on the kind of national stage than it did when you were in culinary school back in 1997. Absolutely. I mean, how would you compare the perception of it back then to what you see today and what you've seen evolve over the last 15, 20 years? I think when you talk about a regional cuisine, and I'm going to generalize this to concept rather than place, whether you're talking about the cuisine of Brittany, whether you're talking about the uh, cuisine of Hong Kong, there are multiple regional cuisines and they're identified by whether or not they can be identified. So 
what I mean by that is like, okay, there's Southern cuisine, then there's Louisiana, and then there's New Orleans, right? And these are cuisines that have managed to carve out a spot in the PR kind of world. And I would argue that whether it's Pacific Northwest, whether it's the backwoods of Maine, whether it's Macon, Georgia, whether it's Richmond, Virginia, what you manage to export culturally is that which is easy to swallow and is easy to communicate. You know, I went down a rabbit hole when doing a show about the poor boy sandwich. And you notice that I'm saying poor boy instead of poor boy. And people have jumped all over me about that. But you know that Poe was actually a marketing move that happened during the 70s. The sandwich traditionally is the poor boy. But see, it's so easy to fall for the marketing and replicate it as authenticity. Right. Now, I am certain that there are Southern families who drink almost exclusively out of mason jars. But I'm sick to death of going to restaurants where I'm served bourbon cocktails in a freaking mason jar. Don't you guys have any glasses? So my thing is that part of what's been accepted or, or even lauded, amplified about, quote, Southern, end quote, cuisine for the rest of the country missed the point. Now, here's the problem with that. Well, let's say that we're running the fiefdom of the South, culinarily speaking. We have a council and we decide to put ourselves out in a giant marketing campaign to the rest of the country. We're pushing our product. You know, we're pushing bourbon and we're pushing grits and we're pushing shrimp and we're pushing barbecue. Well, whatever sticks becomes the thing that we start to amplify for ourselves. So yes, Southern cuisine has had a massive push in the last 20 years, but I I fear that maybe we have also kind of cut our noses off to spite our face by the fact that then we just amplify back that. It's like feedback. And that's harmful. There are things that get lost. Right. I'm sorry. We don't drink bourbon at every freaking meal. You know, we don't have shrimp. And by the way, shrimp and grits is a breakfast dish, not a dinner dish. And so when you remove the context, the historic understanding, when you remove that for the sake of marketing expediency, you have to know that the the water just gets shallower and shallower. Yeah. Well, so Alton, you're at a interesting juncture in your career right now. You recently announced that you're leaving the Food Network to pursue some other things. What are you interested in at this stage in your career? I started doing these live touring shows and the live touring shows have become more and more important to me. At first it was just a bet with myself. Hey, can I do a live touring show about food? Can I do a culinary variety show? And I did it back in 2013, 14, 15. Then I did another one in in 16, 17, 18. And then we've just come off our second leg of the Beyond the Eats tour. And the more that I do it, the more important it is to me. So I'm trying to figure out what that means. Our media landscape has changed so, so significantly. And our culinary landscape, as we wrestle and deal with the fact that there have been a lot of voices that have not been heard. There are a lot of voices that have not been amplified. I want to be in on fixing that cultural inequity. But I also don't want to completely silence myself. What is my role? What is the role of a 60-year-old white guy? I don't know. I know what my skill set is. I know what I'm good at. I know what I could be good at. But what should I do at this point is a very different question from what can I do? I used to only think in terms of what can I do? What do I have the power to do? What do I have the leverage to do? And I'm not doing that anymore. I'm thinking more and more about what I ought to do. And that takes stillness 
and a moment of freaking silence, which I'm not doing right now. I'm proving to you that I, you don't, you can leave the room. I can do this by myself. I've come off of the second leg of Beyond the Eats. I released the fourth Good Eats book. I'm going to go back out on the road in November and December with a holiday variant, as we're calling it, of Beyond the Eats. But in the meantime, I'm going to shut up. My wife and I will continue to do our, our live YouTube show, Quarantine Kitchen, because we have a very small audience who likes to watch <laughs> us drink and cuss. People still can't understand that, God, that's Elton Brown and he's cussing. But other than that, I'm going to spend a few months reading a lot, writing a lot, cooking a lot, and kind of just trying to observe the world. As a culture and a society, I think we are at a crossroad. And food, food has one magical ability. I mean, other than keeping us alive one, and that is, it is connective tissue that brings people together. The words community, communication, communion, they all have the same root. It means to have in common. And it is one of the only things that food alone can do. So part of what I'm looking at is the fact that I, I have a certain amount of authority in food. I know a few things about food. What should I do with that? And I don't know. I don't know right now. Well, I'm looking forward to seeing what that is. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> <laughs> but Alton, I want to ask you about your book. You mentioned sure. your new book, which is called Good Eats for the Final Years, which sounds very final. Uh, <laughs> for Good Eats it is, yeah. But I, I saw you comment somewhere that of all the books in this series, this was the hardest one to put together. Is that true? Yes, absolutely the hardest. A lot of this book reflected a sub-series of goodies called Goodies Reloaded, which was a series where I went back into old shows and made repairs and renovations. One of the things that I had to reckon with during that time is <laughs> I've a lot of years have passed down the river of time and mortality being what it is, is a lot closer and was very much apparent to me in this. And so I think that I, I knew that this would be the absolute last Good Eats book. It is the last Good Eats book. We were actually getting ready to tear the set out of my studio. I think that I put a lot more work into it because of that. I also tackled a lot of the photography myself. It's quite hefty. Yeah. It's like four and a half pounds. <laughs> Sorry. But <laughs> even when I did Good Eats, the later years, the third book, I knew I'd be coming back. I knew that I was just going to go out. I was going to do a show called Cutthroat Kitchen. I was going to do some other things and then I would come back to Good Eats. It was always my plan to come back to it, but that's done now. And I am really done with that now. And that is powerful because I have to look and admit that that show was really kind of my life's work. It was the thing that if I die tomorrow, please remember me for that. <laughs> and so yeah, that made the book a lot harder and, and probably a hundred pages longer. Well, do you feel like you have the final last word on biscuits in there? I have the last word for me. The biscuit recipe that I have in this book, which I am ready to proclaim is my best biscuit, is an act of heresy <laughs> for which even less than a hundred years ago, I probably would have been burned at a stake. And I ended up with a biscuit I was literally just playing through like versions over and over of trying to come up with deals like what, what does the biscuit want? What does the biscuit need? And in the end, the damn thing is gluten-free. And I, 
I didn't, <laughs> I wasn't aiming for that, man. My grandmother, <laughs> that sound is her bones rattling around as they spin inside the coffin because there's no white lily flower in there. There's no wheat flower at all. I will not for one moment break out words like ultimate, which is the most ludicrous word to ever put in front uh, on a recipe. Nothing is ever <laughs> ultimate or perfect or any of those things. I will tell you, however, that it's the only biscuit that I've made since. And so I'm done with that. Well, I can't wait to try it out. I was particularly interested in what you said about buttermilk. I didn't realize that buttermilk used to be sort of a more watery consistency. Buttermilk was the Gatorade of the 18th and 19th centuries. It was a very liquidy but protein-packed beverage that was kept in well houses to keep it cool for drinking in the summertime. It was the original sports drink. Yeah. <laughs> I'm excited to give them a try. Well, Alton, before I let you go, I've got to talk about music for a second. You're a musician. You're an avid guitar player. What do playing music and cooking have in common for you? Oh my gosh. I am an avid musician. I, I grew up as a, um, a saxophone player and had even at one point planned on being a professional jazz saxophonist. I started playing guitar when I realized that I wanted to write songs and you can't sing and play a saxophone at the same time. The similarities are, for me, very significant because especially when you look at jazz, you have to understand what it is you're listening to very often, which is also very much the truth with eating Southern food. You have to know what it is you're tasting. You have to understand it. So you must understand structure. You must understand form. Once you structurally master things, then and only then can you play with the rules. It's all mishmash until then, which is why really great jazz players, you know, whether it's a guitarist or a saxophonist or a trumpet, well, I don't care what it is, will play within the structure of the chords, go out, meander, take a wild ride, and always come back every few minutes to let you know, yeah, I know what I'm doing. I know what this is. I know what's in a D7 sharp nine. And that is also very, very critical in cooking in general, but certainly in Southern cooking, where it has been so easy for people to make riffs on things. And I'm making my own riff on, you know, this dish or that dish. It's like, well, you, that's fine. You can, you can show me what a pan-Asian Shrimp and grits is, but if you're going to use those words, shrimp and grits, then you better make sure that in that dish, you show me that you actually respect and understand the original form. Yeah. You got to know the rules in order to break the rules. And even breaking the rules is only kind of temporary. You can bend them. I don't know that you can ever break them. I think that breaking the rules very often loses the audience, but you can bend mm. them. It's knowing that the, how far you can bend it before you break it. Whether it's barbecue or whether it's just simply a nice pot of greens, you got to show me that you understand what it is, understand what the structure is, understand the traditions, respect it before you mess with it. Well, Alton, you're often referred to as a chef, an author, an actor, a cinematographer, a musician, but you're not often referred to as a teacher. And I just, I wonder if you see yourself that way, because it seems like you have done so much teaching through your shows and your books. I don't. I'm a storyteller. My job has always been to entertain. We used to have a sign over the studio door when we were shooting Good Eats that said, laughing brains are more absorbent. You can teach if 
you can entertain. So my job has always been to entertain first and foremost, but I've always made sure that there was something that you could take away. I'm an entertainer. I tell stories. And it just so happens that my stories typically concerning food involve a payload of knowledge or a payload of of know-how that is either going to be accepted or not recepted. But in the end, if you're entertained, okay, my job's done. (laughs) Well, Alton, I just have one more question for you. What does it mean to you to be Southern? Joyously conflicted. It is messy business being a Southerner. It means embracing contradictions. It means in its best iteration, an understanding not only of others, but a much more critical examination and understanding of self. It is not easy business being Southern in a modern sense. And being Southern does not mean that you get to fall back on traditions that protect you or somehow cocoon you from the realities of the rest of the world. That's not Southern. I don't think that that's really Southern. I think real Southern is spooky business. We're haunted. We're spiritual. We are sinners and saints. We are drunkards and preachers. And we create astoundingly soulful pieces of art, astoundingly soulful music. And what I hope for the South is that we must rise in full understanding and strive for the full understanding of who we are and what we are, what we've done, what we're going to do, what we're doing today, what we'll do tomorrow. And understand that those trajectories are ours to determine. We are not victims. We are not forgotten. We are not downtrodden. Yeah, I think I'm going to leave it at that. It's a lot, isn't it? (laughs) Well, it's a lot more than a lot of people that aren't Southern might think. Well, Alton Brown, thank you so much for being on Biscuits and Jam. Thanks so much for having me. I'm hungry for both the biscuits and the jam right now. So um, I think I'm going to go crank up the oven and make some of those damn gluten-free biscuits. I can't believe I'm even saying that. (laughs) Thanks for listening to my conversation with Alton Brown. You can visit altonbrown.com for recipes, merch, tour dates, and more. Southern Living is based in Birmingham, Alabama. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And we'd love your feedback. If you could rate this podcast and leave us a review, we'd really appreciate it. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuitsandjam. 